0: This podcast was recorded on Bunjalung land of the Iroquois nation. Welcome to the Future Ancients podcast. My name is Luca Lesson. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my patrons, those legendary human beings who have joined me on this platform called Patreon, which joins and connects artists with their supporters and lovers of art with great artists that they would like to support. It's an incredible process where people just donate a small amount of money once a month to artists that they love. That gives a foundation to artists and creatives around the world for them to be able to continue to make the art that they love, that they want to make, and put it out into the planet and create change or create whatever it is that they create and put it out to the world and make a bit of an impact from their their small studio at the moment i'm locked in you know i haven't got any gigs every school has kind of postponed or canceled all of the the workshops and teaching engagements i had around poetry uh, around australia and around the world and so patreon has really been the savior for me all of you have been the saviors so if you would like to become a patron of my work just go to patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash luca lesson and you'll get all the information you need there's a lot of goodies there there's a lot of discounts and free stuff that i'm giving to my patrons i love to look after you all and we are 120 people strong at the moment so i'm celebrating that i appreciate you all thank you so much this episode of the podcast is with a crucial human being named Damon Gammo. Those of you who do not know who that is, he is an actor, a documentary filmmaker and an activist. He's a really important person and I'm really thankful for his time. He created two major documentary films. One of them is called That Sugar Film and the other one is called 2040. The most recent one, 2040, is a film about the around the idea that if we just implemented all of the technologies that we have already today, what could we do to reverse climate change? What could we do to move towards a more sustainable planet? What could we do to make sure that the future of humanity is saved, <laughs> is long term, we that we experience longevity and that we leave this planet in the good hands of our children and grandchildren knowing that they will have a future it is a really incredible film and i really appreciated it when i saw it when at the cinemas when it first came out and to be able to talk to damon and to go even deeper into what that film was about and where we're going and the trajectory of everything was really important and really powerful for me we talked about covid we talked about egos within the activist realm and circles we talked about only preaching to the choir And what kind of damage that can do We talked about guerrilla gardening We talked about um, solar panel microgrids within communities We talked about all sorts of things And I should point out also This conversation happened before the murder of George Floyd And if that had happened um, before we would have this conversation Obviously that would have been a major part of this conversation as well Because these worlds are connected um, The freedom of all people including civil rights also you know turns to the rights to nature the rights to clean air the rights to clean water the rights to land the rights to food food sovereignty all of these things are connected but it should be pointed out that this conversation happened before that uprising and continued uprising and that is why it's not a part of this conversation not because we're brushing over it in any way shape or form much love everybody at the end of this conversation i have posted a poem that i was inspired to write after we had this conversation with damon it is called what will become of us so i hope you enjoy that as well this is the future ancients podcast Uh, Zayman, welcome to the Future Ancients
1: podcast. How are you? I am I'm doing okay, Luca. I've, uh, it's been an interesting lockdown period for myself, as it has been for many other people. Juggling work, family and whatnot, but um, ultimately it's been a lovely time of connection, actually, and um, there's been a lot of silver lining to what's been going on. Yeah.
0: I feel kind of similar, you know, like, as I was, I had many things booked for the rest of the year, like, a, I don't know, like, 60 or 70 school visits. And I do a lot of workshops and and with young people, a lot of performances um, with young people. And I had slowly, you know, like, get, I got fired, you know, like, one by one by one, <laughs> <laughs> almost a 100 times in different ways. <laughs> and as it was happening, I was, almost equally upset and relieved at the same time. And I realized that I wasn't really loving what I was doing, even though I love the impact it has that there'd been a while where I'd been feeling like kind of taking a step back and, and traveling less and yeah, getting my hands in the dirt a bit more and, and yeah, having my relationships a bit closer and tighter and it kind of gifted me that opportunity and also a whole other bunch of problems that came with it. And I feel as though there's been a lot of self-reflection going on that around the planet. Um, and maybe that some of that self-reflection leads us towards considering more the environment and our impacts on the environment. Have you found that kind of a conversation going around your community over the past month or so?
1: yeah no doubt I mean I think the what 's been extraordinary is to see how quickly the earth can bounce back when we get out of the way it's um, it 's like the analogy of holding an apple under the water if you, as soon as you let it go it sort of popped to the surface very quickly so it was amazing to see even within, within three weeks how quickly some of the you know the air cleared we could see the Himalayas in parts of india um, the streets of delhi were had never been cleaner. Um animals returning to the to cities, um, waterways being clearer, uh, emissions dropping. so uh, I think for a lot of people it's it's revealed how deleterious our current system actually is on the planet um, and that all it takes really is to is to stop what we're doing and 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 we will recover very, very quickly uh, if we allow the earth to do that. so um, I guess early on I was a lot more hopeful that we would use this opportunity as a as a new metal world that we want to create, and we, we might recover and rebuild using the right technologies or strengthening our communities, uh, putting safety nets in place for people that um, are, are going to need it moving forward. We're going to have more pandemics. We're going to have more climate shocks. And I think the, the fragility of our system has really been exposed in this time and, and how tightly wound and efficient all our supply chains are. And they're just not built for any sort of um, error, which we've seen. So. Um, but that hope has dissipated a little bit to be honest in the last couple of weeks just seeing some of the decisions that it looks like our government's going to make particularly in the US Uh, they are going to double down on the system and and, rebuild with more extractive industries uh, remove green tapes and regulations that allow people and corporations to keep destroying the planet Um, but amongst them you know I think there are like I said cases for a silver lining there's a you know, it looks like Spain's going to implement a universal basic income. It looks like mm. Amsterdam's going to rebuild with a donut economics model. Uh, there are wonderful things that are going to stay with us around transport. Cities are doing bicycle and cycling, uh, sorry, walkway pathways to lower their pollution. And I think just people have have got a taste of 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 the excess that we had pre-Corona, that we really were operating at a frenetic pace and. Mm. I know from my own experience, so much of that stuff I just didn't need to be doing. And I I needed this moment to realize that and think, you know, I could have said no to 75% of those things and and not caught up with that person all the time or done that talk over Zoom instead of having to fly around the country all the time. So uh, that's a common theme that's coming from a lot of people I'm speaking to, friends, but also business sector, uh, businesses that are not going to let go of some of their commercial rental properties and let people work at home. Um, people that have really connected with their kids for the first time, um, really interesting things that have come out of this time, so i don 't think we will go back to a full version of what we had before. We might spring back quickly because people might think they want to go out all the time and, and but I, I, I hope that they'll retain um, some of the the lovelier moments of this of this stopping this this global vipassana that we 've had in a lot of mm. ways that we 've <laughs> taken stop for a while. Um, and look, I wouldn't mind if we did it every November each year, wouldn't it be great? Just I was thinking how fun it would be to just to have a covember and the whole world just stops for one month again and we just all take a break, let the earth replenish, keep our emissions down and then resume better and more connected.
0: Mm, I'm down with that. I think I also found it really beautiful connecting with some of my Muslim friends, how they're entering into Ramadan around the same time and that the whole world is kind of, without certain things as well, you know, and, and some people that observe Ramadan, they also don't necessarily do the um the strict way of doing it. Or they, they kind of do it in their own way. They're like, oh this month I'm gonna choose to to not listen to to music or not drink coffee or not, you know, just do something yeah. um to just have, you know, build that resilience and build that um connection with having full respect and and appreciation for some of those extras that we have in our lives and the whole world's kind of been in it like you say a a global vipassana a global ramadan a a global um, sweat lodge maybe you know like this feeling of everyone died for a good month or two um, in in a metaphorical sense and unfortunately in a literal sense and we all got to reflect on that uh, at the same time and we all got to watch it at the same time and see each other's reactions and our own reactions and the opportunities that come from it. And I'm, I really support that. I think it would be a good way to remember the people who did pass away actually from, Mm. from COVID-19 to have a remember, and to really listen to why, why and how it happened, you know?
1: Yeah. And, and reflect on our learnings and share that knowledge. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been extraordinary. And I think I did. I didn't think we'd see this in in, in my lifetime. I, I didn't think we'd see it for another thirty or forty years, to be mm. honest. And to have the entire world focused on one particular subject when we have, you know, spent the better part of the last thirty years, or especially the last ten years, really di- di- dissolving our information sources and and having our own little bubbles and mm. pursuing our going down our own rabbit holes on on the internet, and really not having collective storytelling sense at all or, or narrative, and and to suddenly have the entire planet focused on one subject uh, reminds me reminded me of what a community we are and what we are actually capable of, and the fact that we did it here largely to uh, the rules and regulations we shut our shops we we you know we've got silent skies and empty streets to me that's a that's a sign that we do care and we do intrinsically value each other and we respect the health of of each other and that we we're able to do this and and completely dissolve all these what were perceived as rigid structures of our system and our and, uh, the game that we played. Within a matter of weeks, the, the rules of that game were dissolved and we were able to flip to something different. So I think moving forward, that's really heartening, to know that there is a, a permeability of our system, um, that we've all ancient traditions have known the, 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 the illusion of, of this reality. Um, and I think it's been laid bare now that we, 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 we have enormous scope and possibility to shift this system and do things very differently in a very short amount of time is it also
0: i feel similar i feel like it's very heartening in that if we just decide to flip it we flip it you know like we, we are that powerful and i guess we always talk about how powerful we are as individuals and that if we do just decide collectively to to make some change then the economic system kind of has to catch up with our decisions. But I, <laughs> I also feel slightly disheartened in that um, it feels like it was only because of the economy that we all started started running. I know it was also because of the health of other people around us, but it felt like, you know, much of our decisions were around that. And I feel as though, even though some conspiracy theorists say that the government some governments started this whole thing and it's their fault and it was intentional. I'm not very convinced of that, but I am convinced that governments are very good at taking advantage of these types of things. And that when there is a lot of fear in a society that it is taken as an opportunity to leverage that fear to sell us the cure or sell us other things that, that come out of it. I was wondering what your thoughts were on that and what you feel the Australian government might do to leverage this fear.
1: Yeah, well, that's been a, a political tactic for for, for for hundreds of years. Like, if you if you get people in a fear state, then they're, they're less likely to change their vote and they're more likely to stick to the status quo. And And this is a big reason why I made my last film, 2040, was to try and have an intervention on that fear narrative, which I think... In terms of the future dreaming, in terms of of climate change or any ecological discussion, it's only being told with that sort of paralyzing fear narrative, which just doesn't motivate people. They, They get scared and they double down. And if we're not careful, they will keep voting for more authoritarian leaders. They'll vote for walls being built to protect from climate refugees. I mean, that's what's at stake here. So I think it's really important that we flip that narrative and start to excite people and show them that we could actually create a better world on the other side of this. And what would it look like to have these stronger communities and uh, more connected to each other? And A lot of the things that have emerged during COVID. So, yeah, this sort of disaster capitalism, which is what Naomi Klein calls it, of of utilising these moments to slide through. Unfortunately, like I said before, I, I sort of had more hope probably a month ago, but just seeing what's happening now Uh, Trump in America in particular is sort of rolling back all these protections, uh, regulations to allow real stimulus and economic growth off the back of this. So removing any sort of tape, um, some sort of policies that have been in place for decades to protect waterways and whatnot are all being unravelled. And even in Australia, we're seeing um, a similar use of it. We're seeing sort of the the approval of coal mine expansion under Sydney water basin. We've seen the Minerals Council applying for, for new and different permits to give them more scope We've even seen our resource minister sort of say that we've got to rush these uh, decisions through because there are now too many, in his words, cashed up activists that are trying to block the progress of these economic developments. So um, we're very much looking, when we should be looking at a, a renewables recovery and localising jobs and food, because especially because renewables are now the cheapest form of energy by far in the world, uh, even with the, the battery storage. Our government, unfortunately, because of the lobbyists, because of the, the political interest, are pushing more of a a fossil fuel-led recovery. Uh, They're they're using gas at the moment. So, you know, it's a a great shame because the decisions we do make uh, in the coming months are going to be felt for decades to come and Mm. the younger generation are not going to be only dealing with the impacts of climate change. It now looks like they're going to be looking at some really bundled and horrible investments that they're going to be helping to pay off uh, that are actually destroying their future, not helping them. So um, all is not lost. There is still Uh, hope there is a lot of action going on behind the scenes to stop that a lot of people think that they're not going to get these things through because they're just not not non-economically viable and the states aren't going to approve them because the states themselves are doing some wonderful things uh, and really taking the lead in terms of um, climate you know some of the goals they're reaching some of their emissions are are really promising in terms of how quickly they're getting them down so um it's not all doom and gloom thankfully but i think you know this was the potential the door was open to to create a much better future for all of us and unfortunately the, the wrong leaders i think were in positions to 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 make these changes and uh, it's just a shame because we sort of we missed an opportunity after the global financial crisis to to rethink the system and how we do things and we didn't do that in fact we gave more money to the people to cause the problem and it looks like now we're we're again we're we're so addicted to our system and that's the problem it's a, this competition, this game we play, this extractive sort of game is is the core foundation of how we interact and and people are really loath to give that up. But unfortunately, unless we give that up, we're gonna keep plundering the planet. We're gonna keep destabilizing our social structures uh, because the game is not set up to be supportive and regenerative. It is set up to push winners to the top. Often those winners have sociopathic tendencies. They're quite happy to step all over people and show no empathy. And we reward them and then we let them make the decisions and control the rules of the game. So it's, it's an absurd, absurd board game, really. Um, but we need to be throwing up ideas. And I think people are seeing now, and exp- the game's being exposed for what it is. And so I do feel that there's enormous momentum and, and that we will see some kind of tipping point. It might come within a year and a, a tough time, but there is enough momentum building that at some point, I think in the next couple of decades, we're gonna see a, a, an enormous shift. Uh, because people are now demanding something different. And even the conspiracy theories you're alluding to, I often think that those people, you know, I I empathise with them because they deeply care. They want the world to be a better place. And they are laying the blame on someone and trying to work out why it isn't better. In the same way that I look at the fossil fuel industry and go, you're you're blocking a better future for my daughter. Uh, They might think it's Bill Gates or someone else, but they still care and they still want a better world. And so I empathise with those people, and they go go about it slightly differently to me. But again, they want a better connection with their fellow human beings, and they want the world to be better. Mm. And they are
0: asking the right questions, really. Fundamentally, they're asking the question: Why? How? Where? From? That it has to be. There has to be more than just what I'm being fed on the surface. That's right. And that's a great question to be asking. And if it leads you down a rabbit hole, you know that that's that's okay too. It can lead you down a rabbit hole for a while, and and maybe there's some truth in those rabbit holes that they are they are following. I'm not going to completely discredit no, you know, this. I of course there is. I don't, Yeah, I don't really love this idea of like, you know, inculcating people into a certain box and going that person is an anti-vaxxer, this person is a conspiracy theorist. This person, no. It, there's no there's no nuance in that, and I don't think it really works no. to to move the questions forward. No, I mean, a good
1: example of that is the, you know, I've, I've done a huge deep dive on the whole 5G thing because, um, you know, for a variety of reasons and I find it really interesting and, you know, it takes work. It's a lot of work to actually do a proper deep dive on both sides of the camp. You know, there's equally valid arguments everywhere. And so, you know, what I came to as a conclusion eventually was this sort of sense that at an acute level, there seems to be sort of, you know, not no, no major problems. There's certainly no direct link to cancer or whatnot. But what hasn't really been looked at is the sort of the more subtle impacts, the sort of the, the fact, the cell-to-cell communication that happens, which is an electronic signal as well. The toxicity at that very minute level is not something we look at in science. We don't do it in food. We don't do it with our health. Uh, we're starting to but we really are very good at diagnosing large obvious problems but the real subtleties um the nuances of some of these problems are not there yet so i understand people's concern for 5g and i also understand that people are saying it's a conspiracy theory it's fine because it depends which lens you're looking through it and if you do the deep dive like i said and spend hours pouring through a variety of subjects it's completely i can see both sides of the story really clearly so um This is our greatest challenge, ultimately, is how do we collectively make sense of these things and and come to agreements to move forward? Otherwise, democracy democracy is going to fall apart, as I'd argue it probably is right now, because we're just losing trust in science. We're losing trust in any institution, any ability. We don't trust anyone, really, government, corporation or science. So it's a really interesting time we're in. And um, I think if we don't get that sense-making part right, then we're in all sorts of trouble
0: yeah unfortunately or fortunately i'm not sure which one it is it's really the ones who have control of not necessarily the media but forms of media um, and that are producing certain forms of media from you know yourself with movies or online or even different forms of social media because we are especially now in isolation not connecting with that many people in our direct community physically Mm -hmm. around us but getting everything through a funnel that comes to us um, through different screens, then whoever is giving that information and has done some of the research more than, you know, the average single mom at home looking after her children can possibly fathom being able to spend so many hours researching something deeply, the videos or the content that reaches them kind of wins that ideological Mm -hmm. war in a Mm -hmm. sense. And that is a horrible thing because of how many people have control of those channels and also an incredible thing because we can all create a channel, which is kind of what this starting this podcast for me was about. Um, And so I find it really empowering to a certain extent, Mm -hmm. but it also is worrisome, you know, that in some ways if you are on a certain edge or you're saying a certain thing or your opinion about something is beyond what social media giants decide is, um, is okay, it can be silence, it can be shut down. And That's I right. really appreciate your work being aimed at, in many ways, for one of a better word, the mainstream. Any Joe can come and watch your movies and really feel it and get it. And I feel like there's, there's kind of less of a chance of it being shut down, but it, and more of a chance of it being, you know, reaching a white audience. But have you experienced that at all with your work of people actually hitting back at it and trying to, mm. to
1: stop it in any way? Oh, of course! I think any, anything you put out there these days is is subject to that scrutiny. Um, I certainly felt it in the sugar film. There was um, money from people that hadn't seen the film. We were tapping to this sort of anti-sugar narrative that was around at the time. You know, there was there was I quit sugar. There was sweet poison. Very evocative language at the time, and we we tried to make a film that sort of said, "Look, you know, you can still have sugar. Just be aware of." where it's hidden in your food, you know, we still recommend six teaspoons a day, which is what the World Health Organization recommended. But just, you know, up the ante on reading your labels and making sure you know what you're giving to your kids. But uh, people didn't see that that way. And so I got a, some great lessons really um, in, in some of the pushback. And often, if you're open to it, um, that can be your greatest learning. And unfortunately, we've set up through social media, these platforms that often you don't get um, interaction from people that disagree with you. You stick to your tribe. They like what you say, but that's not how you learn. In fact, that's how you you, you become really mediocre. I think you've got to be challenged and hear other people's viewpoints. Unfortunately, we haven't quite found a way to do it that's constructive. We, we, we're so inflammatory and aggressive. The because that uh, with sugar is that really reading you know, between the lines of someone saying something, what is there something in there for me that I can I can take away? So I I really value that, and the same in twenty forty. Obviously, when you're talking about climate, you're, you're going to enter all sorts of um, <laughs> denial arguments and whatnot. But even funnily enough, um, a lot of criticism from twenty forty or some of it came from people that thought it was too optimistic, or from more left people that you know, taken an axe to capitalism more and really kind of cut down the whole thing. So. You know, I, I made strategic choices not to make that film, even though I agree again with some of those principles to a degree. I, I thought no one's going to watch that film. That's, that's not the film. That's a film my ego might want to make, mm. but it's not the film that is going to be seen so I can get it into all the banks or all the energy companies or Parliament House, which has all happened. We mm. then have the deeper conversation, but we need to be more strategic with it's the Trojan horse thing. You get in the room, open them up to these new ideas in a safe way. And then you say, well, hey, Here's what the system's doing. Here's how we're consuming our resources. You know, and suddenly they're more receptive and open to hearing that. So um, that takes work and effort and, and strategy. And I don't think we're as quick to react emotionally trickle that we don't actually take a deep breath, consider, tune into the other person and then really think through how we communicate stories. And, and I think we need that more than ever.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of a film called No, No, No in Spanish. It's, um, it's my, my wife's Chilean and the, there's a movie about how they got rid of Pinochet, of the dictatorship. Mm-hmm. And they tried many times to get him out through that very angry, very um, left-wing um, very much talking about the deaths of people that had disappeared the you know like all of this really important and powerful and true history of what went on when he was in power but in the end what got him out was a very fluffy jingle and a campaign that was kind of pop and they had like american actors kind of help out with supporting the campaign and they, they took a huge risk, but they decided to not do it the same way again. That the most important thing, even though their egos and their tribe and their crews wanted them yeah. to, you know, chop down the dictatorship. In the end, it was something very, very mainstream, very pop, very kind of modern that got them the, the win and democratically voted Pinochet out um, yeah. and started making change in that context. It's a really beautiful film. Yeah, and also,
1: I think um, there because that's sort of been eroded. So we we, we almost put our guard up straight away. But I think sometimes you can, content or stories can cut through and appeal to the humanity in all of us that unites us no matter what political persuasion we, we, we adhere to. There is something that unites us all. And that is, I think, around our children and and community and 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 healthy foods and things. So it's just being smarter with how we use that. And, and sometimes, as you alluded to, that's it can be challenging. I mean, I both my films I deliberately sort of made pretty daggy and commercial and kid friendly and and grandma friendly, really. And you know, I would have loved to not do that in a way. I'd love to make a super uber cool film that you know, um, yeah.
0: everyone thinks, oh, he's trendy. a real one. Damon's a real one. He's, he's real, really part of the movement, you know, like he's, yeah. which I see, I can tell that that's what you've done, but not everyone, I yeah. guess,
1: can tell. That's right. So I have got pushback on that before of, you know, it's not very sophisticated. Or, and I, it's like, well, it's not for you. Like, you get it. Like, I'm not, yeah. this isn't for the environmental movement. This it's is not for the preaching members. to the choir. That's right. How do we get beyond the choir? Because that is doing us no good. Um, how do we start telling stories that bring everyone together again and, and unite them on certain things that should be done? And I think environmentally is the great one. If we can change that metaphor to it's actually all of our home. It doesn't matter what political persuasion you're on. If we don't have healthy soils and the oceans, we're gone because they're the foundations of our civilization, and it won't matter what side you're on. So how do we actually start to, to cut through there and, and, and talk in those kind of ways to get people to, to realize that and think, Oh, yeah, okay, that is important to me. So, yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot of work to do. But I, um, I, I do think that's the way forward. Hmm. I
0: often find it so interesting. And having experienced some pushback from from the left, of which I consider myself a part, if if we even need to adhere to that anymore, which I'm excited about not kind of defining ourselves that way, and in different ways. But I have experienced a lot of kind of violent pushback from the left of not being this enough or not being that Mm -hmm. enough understanding, you know, same as you in in many ways um, on a different scale that I'm producing things that I'm trying to bring people in to a conversation rather than preach to the choir. And I find it very interesting that the left is very good at that, very good at cutting each other down, but I don't see the right kind of saying, Oh, you didn't, dig enough mines this year or you didn't you know like you know like they don't really necessarily you know cut each other down in that sense of like you you didn't make enough money i mean they're competing i guess they have a different level if we're yeah. talking about it in terms of capitalism where they are competing to get as much money or as much resource as possible but it doesn't seem to be as vicious on this level and i think that it's it's a good Change to kind of push out of that and, and push into understanding that everyone's doing it differently yeah. and as long as you're doing something you know in a way yeah and that it's important that there's people it's important that for one of a better kind of metaphor that it's important that there's a Malcolm X and that there's a Martin Luther King <laughs> you right. know Malcolm yep. X is outside screaming down you know the powers that be and taking no oh. prisoners, and and Martin Luther King is inside negotiating, you know, and, and that's, there needs to be a bit of both for us to progressively move into a certain direction.
1: Man. Yeah, spot on. And, and like the amount of times in the, in the press, especially overseas in Europe, I got asked about, you know, what do you think of Greta Thunberg? And so do you disagree with what she's doing? And it's like, no, like we need all of this. Like not everyone is going to join XR. But they play a, a, a crucial role someone else might go look i don't want to go and stand in front of a, a car but i'm willing to give five thousand dollars for a seaweed solution project so have mm. just got to give people multiple in- entry points yeah. instead the of thinking that there's one way to do everything it's just not who we are we've all got different fears and other things light us up and so we just need to make sure we're we're appealing to all those different facets mm. and one
0: of the things i guess people can do i've been i guess Besides already loving your work, I wanted to talk about the Grow Marketplace app and that process as, as a fundamental thing that people can do in their own homes to decentralize these farming practices. Where, where did yeah. that come about? How did you and your team behind you have, have the, the guts, I guess, to take, take it by the, by the neck and go, we're going to just do it?
1: Yeah, well, I guess we, um, we'd seen the success of a lot of the campaigns we launched off the back of the film, again, giving people that that entry point to take action and just to see how supportive and ready people were to invest in these projects or volunteer or donate their time. It's just been kind of extraordinary. So since that, that time, we get a lot of people um, approaching us with different ideas or things that they think, you know, are very aligned with our values and they believe in sort of regenerative system. And one of those was a, a, a farmer who lives up near me who, who just had this idea for the tunnels. And as soon as he explained it to me, I thought this is just exactly what we're all about. It's it's very it's decentralizing the food process in the same way that we talk about the microgrids in the film which take away from this central controlled base load energy power to start actually having these grids on people's houses that they can connect so that makes them more resilient, it uh, keeps the money within that sort of community. And it just felt like, wow, the next step of that is to do it with food. Um, For people that don't know, in this country, we have an incredibly controlled food system. We have a duopoly with Coles and Woolies, and they make it extremely difficult for farmers in terms of squeezing them in a a variety of ways. It's an incredibly intensive system in the sense that uh, they will make a farmer uh, produce a certain amount of crop each month. So say it's lettuce, they'd say we need uh, 400 kilos of lettuce you have to produce every month. But often they'll come to them and say we only need 50 kilos of lettuce this 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 month, so the farmer has to throw away that lettuce. It's an inc- incredibly wasteful process. Then moving the food right around the country obviously uses huge amounts of, of miles. There's you know shocking stories of things being grown near near a certain town, but then they're driven 500 k's away to be packed and then they're shipped back around the country. So it's 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 really inefficient. But they have so much control on the market that it's very hard for farmers to know what to do. So we just worked with these guys to set up this decentralized food network which basically means you can uh, at a residential level you can grow food in your own backyard in a tunnel or if you don't have a tunnel just however you're growing food and then this app which we've set up allows you to connect with other people in your area to start to decentralize the food so if you're growing carrots and potatoes but your neighbor is growing radish and basil you can do an exchange you can buy and sell it with each other you can provide to the local uh, shop as a grocer which again uh, takes that waste element out because they know ex- exactly what they're going to get in their region. And the same for the farmers. Uh, a lot of farmers have been really interested because they're now uh, setting up one or two tunnels on a spare bit of land they have, which provides a secondary income and they can you know employ a couple of people, bring them out to the rural areas again and grow really healthy organic vegetables and make a great bit of money off them. And again, start to ship them directly to their local producer or to the farmer's market or whatnot. So it just starts to, create more resilience. And I think that's what people are looking for, especially at this time. We've seen the global supply chains, how fragile they are through Corona, that, you know, moving forward, we're going to need to build more, you know, localised food production and resilience into our own communities uh, so that we can access that food if things like this happen again or when they happen again. And uh, I, what was, has been really heartening is that um, there's been a huge panic buy of seeds around the country, which is, <laughs> a lot better than toilet paper. The fact that people are buying <laughs> sick, <was> me. <laughs> Yeah is, is fantastic. So um, I think a lot of people have started growing food in their own yard or, or really reconnecting with that. And, you know, apart from the food, there's just so many health benefits, mental health benefits to getting your hands in the soil again, teaching your children where food comes from and how it grows. So uh, again, that's one of those lovely silver linings that I think's come out of this time. But Um, yeah, it'll be interesting. The app is, the concept is growing. It's been a tricky time just because of people obviously financially um, have been in a bit of a pickle, but certainly farmers have really responded to the tunnels and there's some very exciting things going on.
0: Mm. And so you've got a fundraiser going for it. Have you
1: extended the, the date, the limit for that fundraiser? Yeah, they've pushed it back a little bit and I think they also have like a, so it's a crowdfund to get it going and there's different levels so you can come in, if you have already growing your own food, you can sort of just just get the app, um, you can buy the veggie beds or you can do the whole tunnel. Um, and the advantage of the tunnel obviously is that it provides a, a controlled environment, especially for, for you know large storms, weather events uh, through the winter, it creates a heating effect in there so you get longer season of growing um and now they've offered uh, through the crowdfund a bit of an installment plan as well so if people are interested they don't have to sort of give the money up front they can sort of find a, a way to pay it off as they as we all recover and grow back so um we actually got one ourselves in our house and it's just been wonderful um for the kids and, and we all love it and we use it regularly and, and we we're, we're generating probably about 60 or 70 dollars worth of organic veggies out of that tunnel so you know, we've, we've probably already paid it off, you know, in, in the 10 weeks that we've had it. It's um it's a bit of a no-brainer and now we're sort of getting food and encouraging other people in our area to get one so that we can start exchanging food. And to be someone that exchanges food, do you have to have a tunnel or can you just be growing organic veggies yourself? That's right. You're just growing organic veggies yourself. Or you, just, you just plug onto the app, into that network, and then you can buy and sell it if you want to, but what people are doing are they've set up like a, an exchange so you might work out that A kilo of carrots is worth three bunches of basil. So you're actually using food as a currency, uh, which again is just a great way to build that community support and strength. Especially
0: around um, here. I think you're in the same kind of area. I'm in up behind, behind Mullum at the moment. And um, I realized that, uh, you know, organic veg is just so expensive. Organic, herbs are just so expensive. And I grew up being from a Greek background, I grew up in my grandmother's garden all the time. Both of my grandmothers had incredible gardens, just so abundant from like, four square meters, they could feed, (laughs) you know, a family of five. And they're just amazing gardeners, you know, that's what they do. That's they were peasants coming from from the village in Greece, and they came to Australia and they had jobs, but their gardens were always abundant. And that that was always, now that we think back, that was always organic produce. You know, yeah. they weren't they were using sprays. My grandma would, would put garlic and chili into a bottle of water and spray that onto the plants to, to stop bugs from getting them. And it yeah. was always very, you know, like hand done and it was always very organic. And for people to realize that this organic label is not some fanciful, incredible, magical place. It's actually the normal the average, um, the correct way of doing things, I guess, but it's become something that is sought after because the industry has become so polluted with toxins. So to be able to, for us to become organic growers is, is, yeah, it's more than just, I think, you know, 70 bucks a week. It's because it is so expensive to be an organic grower, Mm. you know, like it's, it, the power of that is really, is really incredible, you know? And Since being um, in lockdown, we've tried to keep buying organic and it can be difficult, you know, like when you when things get tight, that's one of the first things that goes, you know.
1: That's right. and The prices have gone up so much uh, during this time. So, yeah, to be able to do that yourself, you know, this, these are the lessons, you know, in, in a lot of ways, even though this has been really damaging for people. It's probably been a dress rehearsal as well for, for what's mm. to come, you know, that we, a lot of sort of... Um, you know disease experts and whatnot will tell you that this you know there are there are much worse pandemics around the corner if we're not careful and the more we encroach on natural habitats and destroy biodiversity you know we sort of as horrible as this one's been you know there are sort of avian bird flu strains that can have a mortality rate of 50 or 60% you know and how how catastrophic that would be in terms of a shutdown uh, we're going to get more fires and 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 weather events because of climate so i think it's now really important to to value the things that we probably neglected a little bit um, or haven't given the priority that we should be and whether that's you know, food growing or teachers or healthcare or mm. support like a universal basic income, all of these things have to be on the table now because we've seen that when everything falls apart, they're the things we value. And all the extraneous items, all the excess that we have in our culture are the things that actually aren't making us happy. I'd argue that some of them are making us miserable, but they're also the th- things that are destroying us ecologically. So I hope that this is, this is a, an opportunity where we've just stripped everything back and realise what actually makes us happy and the things that didn't make us happy and that we move forward uh, living a better life with less than what we had pre-corona.
0: Yeah. I find that really powerful and I find the, the revolutionary aspect of gardening really powerful. You know, <laughs> yeah. It's really, I, I watched, because I'm learning how to garden, I yeah. watched um, the masterclass of Ron Finley He's the guy they call the gangster gardener from Los Angeles. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard about him. Oh, yeah. man, he is a king. And he yeah. and the way he talks about it is just so powerful. Just like, why shouldn't our footpaths be full of, full of food? You know, like, why yeah. should they be <laughs> anything else? He says that he talked to a famous architect and he, and he asked the architect, what are cities built for? And the architect said, they're built for people. And he said, no. Nah. Wrong. If they were built for people, you'd be able to, wherever you're sitting, you'd be able to reach your hand out and grab a fresh pear from a tree. You'd be able to breathe fresh air, sleep on the ground. You know, he's like, it's built, cities are built for commerce, period.
1: That's it. And And, cars, sadly, a lot of our Western cities are built for cars. And yeah, I've often thought, um, you know, a campaign, a terrific guerrilla sort of under the cloak of darkness campaign would be to get sort of people right around the world, just in the middle of the night, go and plant food amongst their cities and we get millions of people to go and do that and plant fruit trees and veggies in nature strips and whatnot it'd just be fantastic why shouldn't we be doing that we plant trees make them food crops you know let people eat um you know there's a lot of legislation around that and there's a lot of fear around it but it's kind of what we need to move towards and we've done it before we did it in world war ii we had the victory gardens and you know, countries were were planted with everyone in, in the parks, everything planted fruit trees and veggies. So mm. we can do it, um, and people Cuba are doing it to as do well.
0: It. When it's, Cuba was Cuba. kind of shut do down, it, yeah. they yeah. they have a, that incredible kind of gardens built in, in abandoned buildings. Every That's every right. square corner of dirt was was planted out because yeah. they had to, you know. And then all yeah. of a sudden, it's like, wow, we can be abundant right here, right now. And it's not delivered to us in plastic from a shop. You know, I was I, I went from Brazil last year with my wife's family to Singapore to teach in an international school in Singapore. And from walking around the streets in Bahia and Brazil, where there's just mangoes and jackfruit and just fruit, and food everywhere. You could live there and eat abundantly without ever going to the shop if you were cool with just eating the same four or five different types of food <laughs> every day. Like it's just tropical and abundant, papayas and... And then I went to Singapore and I, I went to a, you know, to buy some groceries and it feels like almost every quarter of an apple was wrapped in plastic, you know, like shrink wrapped, yeah. you know, like a whole orange cut up. You can see there's like a meme that goes around online sometimes. It's like literally though, an orange cut up into slices, into Tupperware, sold in plastic and then put in a plastic bag and then you take it home. It's like just so strange to go from one extreme to the other. And, and this app that you're talking about that, that grow marketplace, you know, it kind of cuts that out as well, like all the packaging that comes with it, all the delivery oh. time that comes with it, all the paraphernalia that goes with it, all the marketing that goes with it, all the stuff that we waste to convince people to make, make an orange look good. It's like, you know, we've forgotten <laughs> how to, how to recognize a good orange, you know, if we see one, it's pretty scary how detached we become from, from yeah. our food.
1: And, and then it has its own packet. We don't need to wrap it in plastic it or nature has already provided a really good package.
0: Yeah. And the package tells you when it's getting old inside. That's <laughs> bad. And it's crazy that this talk is even a revolutionary conversation. It's only because we've gone so far from nature that this now becomes revolutionary or crazy That's or right. whatever. But, mm-hmm. but if it's nature and it's been there always, then how is it, At all a revolutionary conversation, you know. It's that's the Mm -hmm. foundation of what we are. It's very strange to me, but yes, Ron Finley, the the gangster gardener, he taught me. Check him out. Yeah, man, he's cool. He actually changed a law because they tried to charge him twice for having a a, um a garden in his front lawn at the lawn uh, across the front of his place. You know, the footpath he planted it out. And the first time he pulled it out and he reluctantly kind of obeyed. And then he got into guerrilla gardening and built a bunch of gardens. And then a few years later, they, and another place, they tried to charge him again and he fought it and, and he ended up winning. And so that right. part of LA now can, you can plant out all the gardens and all the front. Yeah. Buildings. There's an interesting
1: story here, actually. In um, in Lennox head up here in North coast, they, um, there was a guy years ago who was a bit fed up with the legislation around food planting. And he one night just thought, you know what, I'm gonna plant this veggie garden and set up this community veggie patch in a sort of an area near the beach there and, and huge. And people started coming to it for the next week or so, and then the council found out about it. But by then they'd seen the benefits, the kids were playing there, and it flipped them entirely. And they started giving compost and, and helping it out and letting it grow. So there is strong merit in just sometimes getting it done. And I think now more than ever, um, especially if there's a community benefit to it and it's not hurting anyone, then, you know, now's the time to take those risks and be a bit revolutionary. It's, you know, it's hardly doing damage. It's actually providing food and <laughs> sequestering yeah. carbon, which is, a, which is a great thing to be doing. So, <laughs> True. Um, you know, I think we need a bit more uh, gorilla guerrilla planting missions. Hmm. Before we sign off, I just wanted to
0: ask you one, One more question in particular. Um, The start of 2040, the -hmm. first section that you kind of talk about is these solar grids that become independent, that make communities collectively independent, you know, produce their own power and share between them. I know that laws weren't allowing that in Australia necessarily, um, except for some small examples. I think in WA there was an example Mm-hmm. um but not between individual houses more so in industrial type situations i'm wondering what what changes have been made and what progression have been made mm. in that particular part of the of the film
1: yeah there's there's been a lot of um movement in the sort of the microgrid space um uh, some of the rules are being relaxed in, in various ways at the moment you can for people that don't know it's basically if you had a cluster of houses that all have solar panels and a battery um, if you link those houses together and combine all the energy there in storage, you can form your own little mini grid. And then that grid could plug into a group of houses that are doing it somewhere nearby and suddenly the grid becomes larger. And the more you do that, it's like creating these cells or like a network of energy. Which is it right moves us away from this idea of a centralised energy source that is vulnerable to, to weather events or shutting down, that these little individual cells would be able to stay uh, active and, and generate power. The rules now are that, um, which, is, which is a step in the right direction, that some of the energy providers are allowing that within their own networks. So um, there's a Anova Energy up here, for example, are looking at that, um, where if you are an Anova customer and you are connected to that, to each other, you can do this microgrid sort of um, technique within that. Uh, even I think AGL are looking at that, that you can buy or sell energy from a relative uh, if you're both on their network, so that's the first step to getting where we want to go, which is you know ultimately a peer-to-peer exchange, uh, which I think we will get to, um, and that will make energy really, really almost free, you know, because um, it'll just be not having to go through a, a middle person. There'll be still there'll be a grid, and, and there's a lot of merits in that, um, but a lot of new. With this. Um, some of the bushfire communities, like Malakuta and whatnot, are looking at not getting reconnected to the main grid, but actually setting up these microgrids um, mm. to be independent. And it comes in different forms. There are places that are exper- experimenting with um, a large, centralised shared battery for about fifteen homes, and then there's individual batteries in different homes. So it's 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 all looking. Um, there's different ways of approaching it, but certainly that is going to be part of our energy mix. the The amount of solar on, on rooftops that we're putting on in Australia is extraordinary at the moment. Uh, South Australia have just initiated something called the virtual power plant, which is going to be 60,000 homes that have been given a a Tesla battery and rooftop solar. And they are forming a grid amongst all those houses. And some of those estate housing things, so lower socioeconomic. And already they're finding the benefits. I think there's about 8,000 houses that have done that. They're already finding that they can help the grid in a busy time. They can flick to those houses and use their batteries during the day. So, you know, the future isn't centralised. It's this distributed dispatched energy network and that's where the, the, the federal government are just struggling to get their heads around they're still thinking no we need baseload power we need nuclear or we need fossil fuels in, and coal whereas everyone else knows that no the, the grid is going to be a moving entity and sometimes we'll take energy from the snowy river scheme and sometimes we'll take energy from um wa because they're off peak there and then and the whole thing will be a, a smart grid uh, that is moving the en- energy around where it's best needed
0: amazing I find that so heartening that there's been that much change since that conversation. Cause that really was, you mm-hmm. know, the whole film was great, but I really resonated with that particular example. I was really yeah. impressed by that particular example. And I guess what I thought was that the government's just, it's going to take as long to implement it. Um, it's going to take them as long as it takes them to figure out how they can make some money off it. Yeah. Basically.
1: Yeah how, I mean, it can, out, yeah. how
0: they can get their piece of it, you know, but
1: That's right. I think we're we're probably a lot further ahead of the game than other countries. I mean, America is a long way behind that. They're, they're going to sort of, I mean, I think they're even, they've got solar tariffs now, even if you've got solar panels, you've still got to pay a fee just to have a solar panel. So they've found all sorts of ways to, to charge people. And and to put a solar panel set up in America is incredibly expensive compared to here. So um, in that sense, we are sort of ahead of the game uh, in a lot of ways. But so we should, I mean, we are, we've got so much wind and solar here that we should be already 100% renewable and we should be exporting it right through Asia and whatnot and selling our solar instead of our, um, our coal. But, you know, there are plans for that. There are people working on those projects at the moment, really large projects that I think we'll see that happen in the next few years.
0: Amazing. Mm well thank you so f- much for the conversation Demo. i really appreciate it i'm gonna go off and take all this inspiration and i'm gonna write a new poem or a new verse or something and then tack it on the end of this episode for everyone to have a listen um, to and, and mate
1: amazing. please share it share it with me when you've got your poem because i'd love to to share that i just think uh, right now we need to be supporting the arts for a variety of reasons and i think um you know, especially around the change and the transition. This is where where the arts really has to inject culture. I think we've just got very science and data uh, uh, orientated in terms of our communication with this stuff. And I think that any poet or, or songwriter or whatever it is, art, artistic bent is desperately needed right now. So um, I, I applaud you on what you're doing. I've seen some of your stuff and it's just terrific, mate. So happy to, uh, to share it any way we can. Thank
0: you, brother. I appreciate that so much, man. You have a great day.
1: Thank you, my friend. Bye.
0: What will become of us? We ask ourselves this question. In the midst of this mess, as our loneliness lowers our standards and we start to search for answers in the cynical speeches of political ventriloquists spewing out their old falsified syllabus, blaming anyone but themselves from their own scientists to immigrants ignoring the warnings of indigenous nations and their seemingly limitless resilience and patience, we must ask ourselves this question. What will become of us And across billions of screens and millions of live streams, we have found no answers. I have found no answers. So I switched off. sat in the dirt. And I asked the earth. What will become of us? And she answered. In a breath of wind. With a million new shoots growing from the ashes of the bushfires, she answered. And the death of a deer soon to become food for the forest floor, she answered. With a jet white crows lined up in rows guarding the clouds from their eucalyptus branches, she answered. With a full bodied and pregnant sunset with her orange lipstick and bright pink cheeks ready to give birth to the stars. I asked her this question, and she answered, What will become
1: of us? She said,
0: Whatever you decide to make of us. And when she said that, the people stood up They felt her rumbling within their bones, bushfires finally burning within their rib cages, hearts in their fists, sparks on their tongues, their breath hot with the songs of revolution, eye sockets luminous and lasered, back straight, ancestors' hands resting upon their shoulders, spirits high and rising high enough to see the links between ecocide and genocide, herbicide and homicide, occupied territories and those most terrorized women's rights civil rights trans lives the climate strike problems being globalized solutions becoming localized marching through the belly of the beast the underbelly of severe oversight so it's time for us to decide what will become of us whatever we decide to make of us through our actions the future will be reveal.